The Cal Halbert Podcast. Hello, friends. Thank you for downloading and listening to this week's episode of the Cal Halbert Podcast. My guest this week is Mr. Paul Mortimer. I met Paul a few years ago when I was working at Love Sport. Now, you'll probably best know Paul as a, a former professional footballer. He played for the likes of Charlton, Aston Villa, Crystal Palace. Uh, he was uh, a co- he was coaching at Arsenal. He even uh, was assistant manager for Sierra Leone. So I got to talk to him about all sorts of like crazy things from managing smaller teams he was uh, he, so he managed not only did he manage uh, professional football teams he also managed the professional women's side and he did international as well so there's such a plethora of knowledge on this and on top of that Paul is one of the front runners of supporting show racism the red card and kick it out and I think it's a fantastic thing uh, that doesn't get enough press personally uh, that, that's my thoughts but me and Paul chat all the way through all this stuff and he's such a lovely guy and I really hope you enjoy this this episode. So, here we go. The Cal Halbert Podcast. Well, I'm very pleased to say that on the show today, the Cal Halbert Podcast, I've got the one, the only, my very good friend, Mr. Paul Mortimer. How are you, Mort? I'm fine, thank you, my friend. How are you? How's I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm all right. It's been good. Yeah. Football's back on. Tennis is back. I can't complain. Yes, yes. Sport is back with a vengeance. Absolutely fantastic. Looking forward to it all. Watching it as, me- as much as I can. Trying to stay off the setting. It's a tough business. It really is. I must say to the listener that we are recording this on the morning of England versus Germany at Wembley. So before we go any further, I may as well get your your point of view on this match that's coming up. Well, first of all, you've got your shirt on. You're ready to go. I have. I have, yes. (laughs) Um, I'm very nervous because they're two very evenly matched sides, in my opinion. Um, Yeah. And um, it's one of those where both attacks are capable of winning the game, without a doubt. We've got so many fantastic options. And what I think with the challenge we've had is, is getting the balance right yeah. of the right people in, you know. And, and, and so one of two things will happen. I see us winning. One of two things will happen. If, it, if both teams are open and go for it, it could be a 4-3-3-2 a four, three, three, thriller. Yeah. Or, which I think it probably could happen, is it's very, very tight. And yeah. there's one goal in it. And yeah, I, I, I do think it's going to be a 1-0, 2-1 situation. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I do think that if it goes to extra time, I think England would be favourites. I think they've got the legs in, in comparison to, to Germany, personally. I think that's the biggest difference, I think, is our mobility and our agility and, and, and just our legs our intensity and our energy. I think, I think we've got that in abundance. Um, I think the challenge with the Germans is, and we're looking at it historically, in tournament play, they turn up. More often yeah. than not, I know, I think they're one of Europe's premier teams in terms of understanding tournament play. It's completely different from qualification play. Completely yeah. different. This is just about getting across the line. And they do it better than anyone else. They really do. So, as long as history doesn't play a part, and to be honest, this team is young enough that the manager is probably the only person who understands the history, having <laughs> been part of it. So, so I tend to think that that they can they can actually get get past that and have enough experience, even though they're very young, to to deal with the thing they have to do, which is play the game and not the occasion. If they can do that, it's the media. You lot in the media whose fault is. <laughs> whipping everything up into a frenzy so it becomes such a huge occasion 
Yeah. And that's often what makes the shirt heavy. And if, if Gareth can keep them away from that and just deal with the game, I, I think I think you could find us winning a very tight game. Yeah. Hopefully it'd be a thriller like the you know the, the other games have been some of the other games have been absolutely fantastic. I hope it's one of those, but I hope we come away from it victorious. Oh, absolutely. I hope so too. And it is funny you mentioned it. It's the media that put that stuff on. Because I remember my sports, tennis, as many of the listeners know. So Tim Henman famously never read any newspaper during Wimbledon because he was just saying, because there's absolutely no chance that I'd get past the first round with, with that pressure. I, I, I can only believe it happens in this country more than anywhere else. You know, the French Open, the US Open, the Aussie Open, you don't get this kind of scrutiny yeah. of the local stars. I mean, in fact, in Aussie, I think it's Ash Bartley, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, supported. They really, yeah. over here, I felt, I've always felt sorry for the English players. I've always felt incredibly sorry. They're not expected to get past the second week. Yeah. And then, then this old fury becomes about, you know, the LTA are, are worth millions. Why can't we produce a player? And then Tim Henman and Sir Andy Murray come along and the pressure on them yeah. You know, what a wonderful... I mean, I remember when Andy Murray won Wimbledon for the first time. I don't cry. I think I cried. I, yeah. It was one of those... Mo Honestly, in our sport, it was one of those historic moments because I don't know if we actually thought we were going to see someone do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the amount of pressure. And I think yeah. that's that's probably why the England side did so well in the World Cup because it was a load of youngsters, Gareth Southgate's first tournament, and there was there was no real pressure, really. We were just kind of like, well, let's just see how they do. We're, he'll probably be sacked after the tournament, so what? what's the point? And they get to the semis. Do you know the thing about that, though, Cal? The change was our expectations for the first time in my lifetime watching England play were realistic. They were low. Yeah. They, were yeah. re they were where we should. I mean, if you consider before the Gareth situation, we got to quarterfinals. We're a quarterfinal team. Yeah. yeah. For some odd reason, we're always the favourites. Yeah. Teams <laughs> that have got further than us, historically, are less favourites than us. It doesn't make sense. We are always pushed as favourites. I can remember one year, us getting knocked out of the Euros early. And then I think two days later, they were doing... Um, the World Cup qualifiers were coming up and we were favourites for the World Cup. And there were teams who had gone further in the Euros who were behind us. <laughs> I don't know what happens to us. We are, you know, so all of a sudden, all of the expectations become unrealistic. We're supposed to be up there with the teams that get to the semi-final and final every four years. And we are, we're light years away from that. Yeah. You know, yeah, give yeah. us, just, just be, 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 balanced in our expectations, please. And I think that's what Gareth did. The expectations yeah, yeah. were low. Now, unfortunately, because he's been somewhat successful, he's shown <laughs> us a semi-final <laughs> or two. The, the, you know, the expectations have been ramped up. And I, my worry is if we lose. Yeah. yeah Can't yeah. see it. But if it was to happen, I, I know how we go in this country. And that's, yeah. you know, because he's still on his way. I don't know. He's been he's been the manager a while now. I think yeah. after this Euros and possibly maybe after the World Cup or leading up to the World Cup, you have to say the transition period's over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now he should know his team, his his his, his ethos it should all be in place now. So we yeah. can't say it's a young team in transition. Can't yeah. say that anymore.
Yeah, no. yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've got you on to talk about you, Mort, but we'll, we'll carry on with this for just a second. But it's, uh, <laughs> I know, um, I know there's a there's always been big question marks over Jordan Pickford, uh, yeah. being in goal, but he, he hasn't let England down. He's, he's up and down for, for uh, Everton, but for England, he's always delivered. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I'm loath to play players who aren't in form. Yeah, I don't think so, and you have to admit. If we're looking at his Everton form, he shouldn't be in between the sticks. He really shouldn't because he had incredibly high... And often it's because when you come in and you play to such a high standard, it's so evident when you drop below it. And and that's what's happened to Jordan Pickford. He'd come in, I mean, and if you remember, if you remember, because Jack Butland was injured, is why he got his chance. And and so you imagine, had Jack Butland been fit, we'd have been talking about something completely different. He took his chance... And he's been he's maintained a certain level for England where he's been fantastic. At club level, he's been very he's been frail. There's been frailty, vulnerabilities in him, without a doubt. That um, that fortunately he never shows them playing for England. So he has to play. Now, if you look at, and I'm gonna be somewhat controversial, if you look at I think Sterling, Rashford, possibly Kane, Sterling and Rashford have been out of form. Yeah. That they've been out of form. There's no dispute in that. But Gareth trusts them. He's their yeah. go-to players, which is why, you know, where the morning of the game, I think Sterling will play. He scored, he scored the only goals we've scored. He's the only one who looks like scoring. Has he played well? Not really. But yeah. again, I go back to quality, uh, 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 this kind of knockout football is about the goal scorers. It, mm-hmm. it is. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and whatever you say about him, he hasn't let us down in front of the goal. No. But yeah, I mean, I, I would, Pickford has to play. Yeah. He has to play because I think he's, weirdly enough, what he is for England is a calming influence, which is what he's nowhere near for Everton. He's no. all over the place for Everton. <laughs> for England, and the, the thing about it is also, I saw Henderson play, I've seen Ramsdale play, and when the ball goes back to them, they are so, they're so by far inferior to Pickford when he has the ball at his feet. Yeah. For that alone, he's got a play. I mean, it was. I watched it, and it was it was painful to watch. I felt sorry for Dean Henderson. He's a great keeper. Yeah. Well, but, I, I followed followed Dean Henderson because I'm a Shrewsbury Town fan. Was where I'm from. Yeah. So he was on loan there, playing for Man United as well. And he, he got us, got Shrewsbury Town to. We were top of the table for a long time at League One, and then we dropped down ever so slightly. It wasn't his fault that we lost the playoffs and stuff. He was a solid keeper for us. And maybe that sort of lower level football at the League One side of Shrewsbury Town, pushing to the playoffs, getting that pressure, has made him slightly better and built him as a player has gone on. And he's a fantastic goalkeeper. Do you know what? I think he's a wonderful goalkeeper. And in any other year, I would say, yeah, he deserves to be number one. Yeah. But Jordan Pickford with the ball at his feet, because the the modern, the, the game has changed now. Goalkeepers have to be proficient with the ball at their feet. And far too often it went back to Dean Henderson and your heart was in your mouth a little bit. You had to be yeah. honest. Whereas Jordan Pickford, you never Are we going to have another Paul Robinson situation here? Like- <laughs> That's what I'm saying. And unfortunately, but Jordan Pickford, you know, and, it, and when you get to win the international football in this stage, especially with us, it's moments. It's moments. He's not going to be under pressure where his goalkeeping is going to be scrutinised all the time. It just isn't going to happen. Yeah. It'll be moments. But what will happen on a regular basis is the ball's going to come back to his feet. And is he going to put us under pressure? Or is he going to be someone who, who you know, exudes calm and gives confidence out to, to, to the back five? And that's what he does. So for me, 
he has to play. Yeah, he's he's very good at being uh, the extra player rather than being the goalkeeper, if that makes sense. I know that's kind of like blurred line, but he's great at being the extra player than the goalie. I've got to say, Cal, it's the best way you put it. It, it is because that's what you have as a goalkeeper. Now you have to be the extra player. You have to be. You're almost sweeping behind the two centre halves. So you have to pick up things and you have to cut off attacks and you have to be good on the ball because we have this ridiculous situation now because the rules have changed around goal kicks and stuff. Now everyone tries to pass out the back, even if they can't do it. I mean, it's faster yeah. sometimes. But, you know, so goalkeepers have to... I, I would probably say he plays in the five sides and stuff. He plays on pitch. I, I would say because it's not just... The, the thing about being a, a goalkeeper who's good on the ball... It's not just about technically striking the ball. You have to be in tune with the game. So you, because what happens more often in my experience with goalkeepers was what used to happen was when we did the tactical stuff, the goalkeeper was over there training with the goalkeepers. Yeah. And they were just an, an add on, if that makes sense. Yeah. What's yeah, yeah. happening now is goalkeepers are part of the tactical play so that they get, they understand where the game is. They understand because. Time's gone by, you couldn't pass back to goalkeepers. It, it never used to happen. Yeah, so yeah. they were almost disconnected from the game. Now they have to be involved. They have yeah. to understand. And when the ball comes to him, it's like he's like a fullback or centre half. Now you've got to be aware of where it's going to go. So you're yeah. almost tactically more astute because yeah. you now have to, you're almost a centre half or a fullback. You have to be able to play like that. Not only receive the ball, but pass it correctly. So there's a lot more to a goalkeeper now than just making great saves. Um, and yeah. that's hard for keepers, really. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because a lot of people think it's make great saves and play long ball. And it just kick the ball up the pitch and deal with it in 10 minutes. You know? yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> and it's, it's not, not that anymore. anymore. If, if you watch, I mean, it's one of the things that I dislike about football at the moment is how often teams go back to the goalkeeper. Rather than going forward and passing forward and running forward, that's why the Italians are a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Because they, I think they play like a British side. Yeah. They run forward and pass forward and play forward and they play at 100 miles an hour. They do. And I suppose that's Mancini taking the best of British yes. into the Italian team. And that's why I, I think that's why a lot of England fans will like the Italians because they play like we, we do. They do. So, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's the change for goalkeepers. And it's difficult for goalkeepers. I've got to say, when, you know, your work is about stopping shots, catching crosses, getting the techniques right, now you have to be able to do all of that with the ball at your feet, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm like, I don't envy them. I'll be honest with you, I don't envy them. <laughs> well, I mean, to be a goalkeeper, putting your head around all the studs and stuff, you're half mad anyway. <laughs> you, you've got, oh, you've got to be nuts. Throwing yourself, putting your head in where the where the boots are flying about. I don't think there's many handsome goalkeepers. Let's put it that. Way. <laughs> Okay. So, I so don't know. Yeah. I don't know, Mort. I don't know. We first met. Well, everyone. We first met down at Love Sport. Uh, Love Sport yeah. Radio. And yeah. you were you were hosting with a pretty handsome goalkeeper. Uh, he Mr. was handsome. No, he He's was. a very handsome goalie. Yeah, but but then you have to ask yourself questions. Did he throw his face where the boots were getting knocked <laughs> out? You have to. Because why is he so handsome? Why? That's that's, that's what you ask. You ask yourself. He's He's handsome. What is he? I bet, I, honestly, people that don't know football would have gone to him. He's really handsome. I reckon he's a centre-half or a centre-forward. <laughs> can't be a goalkeeper. They're ugly. You can't be a keeper. So you've got to be asking questions about him. Um, 
I'm just putting it out there. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't named him. You can name him. But... I'll name him, yeah. Richard Lee. Diggy Lee. Richard well, Lee. I'm on. Richard <laughs> Lee. Diggy Lee. Yeah. I love Richard Lee. Fantastic guy. Far too handsome for a goalkeeper. Far too handsome. <laughs> Far too handsome, oh. full stop, I think. That's that's all. <laughs> yes, yes. I have well, Morts, we best know you as a former professional footballer. You played for Charlton, Aston Villa, Crystal Palace, Bristol City, among others. Had yeah. you always wanted to be a footballer? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I look back on, you know, my mum who's, who's gone now and, and used to say, even as a young kid, the amount of times she said I nearly got knocked over, funnily enough, following my football into the street. That's what she used to say. I had a football under my arm all the time and everyone else would be doing loads of other things. I would have the ball on the wall. That was me. She knew where she'd find me. In the park, uh, uh, we had a wall uh, and I used to take my ball and she, she knew. She knew I was safe. She'd look out, see me because she knows that's where I was going to be because for me, I just loved playing football. Lo- I, you know, I loved it and I was in love with it. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a wonderful thing. So you were... This this is like from knee high to a grasshopper size yeah. sort of thing, yeah, yeah. 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 Knee high, and then um, well, I suppose at maybe nine, ten, eleven, um, my old the first Sunday side I played for, five aside team we were. It's a team called Red Star, and um, we used to play in Partick Thistle's kit. <laughs> the, the red and black and yeah we just played part, part, but this was kit yeah red start and he was brilliant he was I mean Barry, Barry Leach bless him he's still around there and he was he, and, and what he did was we got the best of everything we got the best of you know I don't know how he had fantastic connections where we used to train so there's a shop down in London called Harrods everyone knows of Harrods okay Harrods had its own uh, sports ground okay? really yeah, Harrods has some sports ground in opposite. If you know where Fulham Football Ground is, literally yeah. opposite Fulham Football Ground over the river, Harrods used to have their own their own sports ground. Their own. That's their insane. Own. I would never yeah. have put that. Yeah. Never Harrods ever have put that. Their fields and, and 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 like a country cup type thing. That's where we used to train. We used. I don't know how we did it, but we had <laughs> we had the best of everything. Honestly, like. That's funny because, like they had the they had the overhead showers and and what we used to do was block up the the, the, the drains and and it would it would fill up and then we'd just swim in it. It was, like, <laughs> that, it was honestly they'd look at us, you know, sort of sort of ragamuffins and, and, and all shapes and sizes and think, what are you not doing here? But he honestly and and he taught us really well. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I used as a coach, the mentality, the mindset came from him. So, for example, clean through. In my head, whenever I was a pro, I'm clean through looking to score. I can hear him screaming at me, hit the far post, shoot for the far post. And I'm talking about from about nine years of age. This is all you tell us where to shoot. Yeah. Now, far post. Always hit the far post because it might hit the post and come out or the keeper will save it and he'll put it back in the traffic and one of your teammates will score. Always. So whenever I watch football, someone's clean through. It's always in my head. And that's the impact. He had a huge influence on us all. In fact, I think I can remember probably half a dozen of the players that played for Red Star went on to be pros. Wow. And, and one played international football. So, fantastic. You know, fantastic pedigree. Very fortunate. Yeah. Taught me a hell of a lot. 
Yeah, yeah. Because had obviously you're saying that you were kicking about by yourself and stuff, and yeah. I know it through my sports. You pick up bad habits that you think are great. Was yeah. was he just a, an expert of slapping them out of you, yeah. basically? Yeah. yeah, he did. He did. And, and, and my brothers, my two brothers, my older brother Tony, my younger brother Neville, we played. They played football. We all played for Red Star. And um, what he taught us was because we were incredibly successful. Really, so we won absolutely everything. And, and more than Partick Thistle, that's what you did. <laughs> we did, we did. We put Partick Thistle on the map. Partick who? No, they're Red Star, not Partick Thistle. <laughs> no, like he, he just taught us how you know uh, um, things that we remember now. The correct things: warming up, the importance of warming up, the importance of team, importance of respecting each other and the opponents, shaking hands, and all all, all of those things that are still around now, yeah. but he taught us how to behave on a football pitch and how to be competitive, but not to cheat or to do underhand things because he'd take us off if we did that. So wow. he was- that, That's, that, that's unheard of really, isn't it? It's, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but what I got a sense of, because we were successful, he wasn't respected. Because, because right. we, we actually, I mean, we play, uh, you know, we play five-a-side, we play uh, a, a tournament and um, people wouldn't watch us because we're winning everything. And if we went a goal down, everyone would come and watch because they want to see us get beat. Yeah, and then yeah. we'd score and then all go, oh, no, <laughs> all over now. Exactly, it's one all. I mean, I can remember us being two nil down. All right, we'd score to make it two one and they've all walked off. Now oh, they're going to win now. We're still losing. And we ended up winning seven two or something like that. But they hated us. And, and what, what used to happen was whenever we, there were some tournaments, I think that, that they didn't want us to enter because you dominate it, sort of thing. Because yeah. we, we were that we were that good, and and uh, you know, it's, it's not being arrogant. That was just the fact. And and there were some times where tournaments happened, and we didn't know about it. Yeah. Until after, and it's like, Barry, what, what happened? No, no, I didn't know about it because yeah. they kept it away from us because they knew we were going to win stuff. And, and it's weird because now, as a as a, a, a granddad. I've shown my kids, like my, my youngest, my third grandson lives with us and he's got some of my old medals in his room. Fantastic. It's, it's, it's the weirdest thing ever. I won them when I was about his age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's That's awesome. Years ago. And, and yeah, they, they, they've still got them. So it's, and it just seems like it. It just seems like such a weird thing to do. It's just kind of like, I tell you what, we'll have the Euros and we'll have the World Cup, but don't tell Germany. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. just like, well, what are you on about? <laughs> That's what it was like. It's almost like all the other coaches clubbed together because they said, we're going to have, uh, and we laughed, it was the non Red Star tournament. Let's just call it that because you just don't want us to be. So it's a second place tournament. That's what we used to call it. You're having the second place tournament because you know you're not going to beat us. But yeah. So I had a fantastic ground in it. It's funny because near Fulham's football's ground is a, is a Lily, Lily Road wreck. And it's literally a 15-minute walk from Fulham's football ground. Uh, and that's where I used to play for Red Star. And I got scouted by Fulham playing five-a-side football for Red Star. And I became an associate schoolboy with Fulham. Um, and that was, that was in the days where, not like now, where, where you're, when you're an academy player, you can't play for your Sunday league side. You could play for your Sunday league side. You, you played. Low, you know I mean, I can remember playing when I was at Fulham. I used to play for two teams on a Saturday, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and two teams on a Sunday, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. That's what we used to do. Everyone used to do it. 
Yeah. Your school team in a week. We play loads of games. Now, the academy kids now can't play any games. Um, do you think that's for better or for worse? What, the situation now? Yeah, so that they can't play. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, listen, for me, what I've realised, having worked in academies, been a technical director and all of that, academies is not the only place you learn. You learn, you learn playing in the street with your mates. Yeah. Because spatial awareness is something you learn playing, you know, 20 aside in, in the street with your mates. You don't learn that at the academy. There's an assumption you already have that. Yeah. Academies can teach you certain things, but a lot of it you already have. The raw materials you already have. Now, the thing about the academies is, are they going to add to that or are they going to restrict it and coach it out of you? Yeah. That's, that's the challenge. So for me, also, what you could do with your Sunday side was showcase your skills and give yourself confidence to be able to go to the academy and use them. And, 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 and also, if you look at things like socialising, within an academy system, it's very difficult to socialise because as much as your teammates, you're competitors. Yeah. And nothing will tell you more, more that you're competitors than your parents. Parents at academies are challenging. <laughs> they really are challenging because they live through their kids some some do there's some fantastic ones but there's some so they they don't talk to the other parents because their child is a competitor competitor and, yeah. and, and that puts pressure on the child as well so i like i said when i was a kid i was at fulham we had associate school boys we had uh, an under 16 side and under 18 side that's all we had if you look at academies now i think they have under nines tens 11s 12s 13s 14s 15s 16s and 18s yeah so it's just too much. Mm -hmm. And every yeah, year... You're not going to get to know your team. You're not going to build a team, are you, sort of thing. It's, yeah. well, it's the thing about it is, every year... So me and you are playing for the under-10s, okay? What they'll tell you is, you'll have a squad of about 15 players. From those 15, you're often directed to look at maybe three or four. Yeah. So if you know who those three or four are, the, the other eight or nine or ten are just making up numbers. They don't, bless them, they don't know that. Yeah, yeah, of course. But they're just making up the numbers. That, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. And if you look at the years going on, under 12s, five or six players you're looking at, the rest of them are making up the numbers. And if they're no good, they've got, you know, last, the, 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 the coming up behind them are the new seasons under 12s. Yeah. So there's always a conveyor belt. And, and so the kids are always under pressure every year to secure the contract for the next year and the contract for the next year. And I've been involved as an as a academy director and also as, as a coach in having to tell players that they're going to be released. Yeah. And it's, it's not nice. I mean, you, you'll have players say, parents say, but he's been here for eight years. And, and I have to say, well, yes, I understand that, but this is about progression. It's not about time served. Yeah. Is he making the... And I played at a club. I, I, I was at a Premier League club as a coach, under-14s. We didn't lose a game all season. Mm -hmm. So when they let players go, they came to me and went, but we didn't lose a game all season. Yeah. And you kind of sit there and you think, yes, but you need to listen to what, what you're being told about your son's progression. So it's the academy system now, there's just too much of everything. Um, and if you consider how many players... Will, will actually 
from that group or whatever group will actually go on and have careers as professionals, not pros, professionals. Because a lot of professional pros who don't have professional careers because they're not playing for a first team. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a real difficult... I, I'd go as far as to say from a personal point of view, I don't think I'd want my child to go through the academy system. Yeah. I don't think I'd want to be... I, I would want to go through the academy system myself, having been in it. Yeah. Um, on both sides. You've been on both yeah. sides sort of thing, yeah. I've been on both sides. I, I don't... I think it's far too much pressure for... And you have to remember, these are children. These are children. Yeah. We call them players, but these are someone's kids. Yeah. That, that's, that's the thing. And, and that's forgotten. They become assets. Yeah. And, they're, and they're you're monetized. Them, you're, yeah, you're monetizing them and you're making them forget that football is ultimately supposed to be fun. You're supposed to enjoy football <laughs> as a kid. That's what it's supposed to be. You know, it's like, yeah, if you're going to be great at it and go through that route, brilliant. He goes, but ultimately, you're having a kickabout. That's what you want to ingrain in you. No, that's not the case. I mean, I've watched academy football. I don't watch it anymore. And even as a coach, what made me, and it, and it, and it made me think about how I coached and managed. The young people don't look happy. They look pressurised. They look like they're, <clears throat> they're a 25-year-old pro playing for a new contract. That yeah. there's, there's no fun in them anymore. And, and, and they don't get to muck about. It's all, do you know what I mean? And, and big kids. And, and for me, it's, it's just far too sanitised and business-like for me. And there isn't enough smiling and laughing and having a laugh and a joke with your mates. It's not, it just doesn't happen. And it's not, you know, I just, I, it's got to be, I mean, yeah, you know, it's serious fun. There's yeah. a serious element to it, but there's got to be some fun. Yeah, you absolutely. I don't think there's, I don't think, I don't think from my experience there's enough. And that's a challenge. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Completely agree. So where was your first first team appearance? My first first team appearance was at Charlton. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I was an apprentice at Fulham. <clears throat> I think it was between sort of 84 and 86. And um, <clears throat> I started with Malcolm McDonald as a manager, I think as a schoolboy. Ray Harford was manager when I was apprentice. And I was a centre forward. <clears throat> little centre forward technically very good physically not you know people had to wait a little bit for me to grow and yeah. um, what, what happened to me was uh, we had hundreds of centre forwards we had too many centre forwards so I'm sitting we're watching at the stage I'm, I'm watching the reserves play the first team reserve versus first team game I'm sitting on the sideline left back gets injured for the reserves and anyone no Paul can you go and play left back never played there before in my life when I played <laughs> left back and it was like, aye, aye, this is all, I quite like this. This is okay. And I played really well. And that's where I stayed. <laughs> left back and played for the reserves. And when it came to, and I played really well. In fact, I truly believe I should have, been, I should have stepped up to the first team. I didn't. Came to the point, and this is 1987, where Ray Harford says to me, um, we can't offer you anything at the moment, but stick around. We'll give you two or three months and we'll see how it goes. And, you know, too small and stuff like that. Yeah. So I wasn't very happy with that because I was playing for the reserves and playing really well. And I they, they had other people playing for the first time. I should have been playing. Yeah. And I, I decided, no, no, I'm going to leave. Petulant, I'm, I'm going to leave. And what I did was 
I left in the March or something like that. I left and I went to work. I went to work in a little bookshop in Fleet Street, Hammock Street and Maxwell, it was called in Fleet Street. And the strange thing about it was during the day, it was, it was dead quiet in this shop. It's, it's, a, it's a law bookshop. No one goes in there, dead quiet. I'm on the front desk and come two o'clock, normally at two o'clock, I'm asleep in, in bed. <laughs> Only my bed had been transported to the front desk at Hammocks. Half a dozen times I've been nudged by someone fast asleep in the afternoons. Well, I wasn't used to it. So, so for six months, I, 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 I worked there and... Um, these and I, 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 I didn't play any football. Just work there. I, I literally nothing at all. No, no. Literally, just, just, just work there. Didn't want to play. Didn't want to play. I felt so cheated. And ninety, I remember nineteen eighty seven. It was FA Cup final day. Coventry beat Spurs that day. Nineteen eighty seven. Uh, two days before that, Fulham rang me up. We've got one more reserve game to play. It's against Charlton. It's at Craven Cottage. Do you want to play? And I'm like, no. <laughs> told him straight, no. Well, the youth development officer, who was a, a Derry Cricket, was a very good friend of mine, was on the phone straight away. And he said, no, you're playing. Don't talk to me. You're playing. I'm like, no, I'm not playing. We're arguing. No, you are playing. You're down to play. You're going to play. So on the Saturday morning, I'm on the bus on the way to, to Fulham. I go around Fulham, Hammersmith uh, uh, Roundabout, Shepherdsmith Roundabout. I'm just sitting there thinking, as the bus is going around the roundabout, I'm actually going to get off the bus and go home. <laughs> I'm sticking two fingers up to so I'm not going to go. Well, as it happens, I went and played. It was against Charlton. I played okay. Uh, season finished. I went and did pre-season. A friend, a good friend of mine was manager of Farnborough Town. And I went to do, I went and did pre-season with them. And Charlton rang me and said, um, I want you to come in on trial. Um, come in during pre-season, but after the running, when the games start, we want to see you play. So I'm like, okay, fine. I've done all my pre-season at Farnborough. I played a game, scored a goal. I was playing left-back. So I went to Charlton, who were at that stage, I think, in the old first division. And yeah. I, uh, what did I do? I, I went to Charlton. They offered me a month trial. And this, I think this was in the July. <laughs> and they signed me after two weeks. Wow. And by that November, I made my debut for their first team. So in the space of six or seven months, Fulham were in what would be League One. I wasn't good enough for Fulham in League One. Four or five months later, I was good enough for Charlton in what would be the Premier League now. Yeah. And what it taught me was about waiting. So as a coach, I always waited for players. Those who were not physically gifted, I always waited for them because someone gave me an opportunity and, and, um, and I went on and played and, and, and you know, it was brilliant. I, I, you know, and so that was my, and I played my first game was against Norwich. Uh, they had a flying winger, ex-Spurs winger, uh, Rule Fox. And I kept him quiet. Though I kept him quiet. <laughs> and, and, um, and you know the weird thing? I think my second game was supposed to be Newcastle, up at Newcastle. Yeah. And I went up in the squad, but I didn't play. And um, it was... They were, they were redeveloping the stadium. I remember that. So you had to walk across the pitch to the plexiglass dugouts. We were in a um, port cabin. You had to walk across the pitch. And I'm a squad member. It's my second game. I'm a night like, and you know, and you know what Newcastle's ground is like. St James Park rammed. So yeah. I'm late out the dressing room for some. I remember a cup of tea or something, and I'm thinking, okay, the game's not so. I'm going to walk across the pitch. 
So the ref's about to start the game. I'm halfway across the pitch. I'm in my clothes. <laughs> the fans gave me dogs abuse. Dogs <laughs> abuse. Because <laughs> I'm now slowing the game down. Dogs abuse. So, yeah. I, I, and then third game was Watford. Carried on the rest of the season. But that was, that was how I started. And, you know, but for a bus ride, it could have been completely different. Yeah. I'm telling you, I, got, I went down the stairs. I was getting off the bus, Cal, because I didn't like the way I'd been treated. But yeah. I stayed on it and... They say the rest is history. I had a decent career and, and loved every minute. That's crazy, isn't it? You, you could have been working in a law bookshop for the rest of your life, skipping on the floor. Well, no. Well, no, because I couldn't stay awake. <laughs> I couldn't stay awake. I think I cost... And you know what? I, I'm virtually sure... Because I, 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 what used to happen also, you'd get phone calls in. That they buy and they law book shops law books law books are expensive and yeah. they come in volume so you you you'd sell five grand's worth of books I'm virtually sure I've got I mucked up loads of times <laughs> on phones and I'm telling you someone didn't get their book but we got the money <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you yeah lawyers and lawyers are not the people you want to upset are they? <laughs> I'm sure it happened. I'm sure it happened, but you know what? I'm out. I was out of it. I was out of it. <laughs> so, so yeah, I was out of it. I had to be. I had to get out of it. So yeah, I was fortunate. I was lucky. Um, but you know, had had I been around now, I wouldn't have played. I wouldn't have been anywhere near it because you think? Yeah. Well, you've got. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't have been anywhere near it because I'd have been too small, and 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 you know. Yeah, I wouldn't have been anywhere near it. So I, I'm, I'm so pleased. Mine was about timing and, and a little bit of good fortune, but I had to be good enough as well. Yeah. Uh, and I, and like I said, I was fortunate. I loved every minute. My career didn't go how I wanted to, just because I, I had a lot of injuries and what have you. But I, I remember that boy kicking the ball against the wall. Yeah. And all I dreamed about, because I lived. A stone's throw from Queen's Park Rangers, from, from the Keon uh, Prince Foundation Stadium, uh, the old Loftus Road. Um, and my dream was to just go and play there. And yeah. I did. I actually managed to go and play for Charlton at Queen's Park Rangers. I think Scott, Scott, man. But, you know, all my mates that I grew up with, all, it's just, it was yeah. nuts. It was craziness. Yeah. Craziness. Yeah. Craziness. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that you say you, you wouldn't play today because I, you know this. My father-in-law's Tommy Cassidy. He's been a guest on the the uh, the podcast previously, yeah. and he played for Newcastle for nine years, nine months. Uh, yeah. And he was saying that he would be a better player today because he was a defensive midfielder and he could pass yeah. the ball very well. He goes, but he says he wouldn't get a game because he was too slow. And he goes, so he goes, he was saying his is very similar in that it was all about timing and that. Many Newcastle fans and Northern Ireland fans would say Tommy Cassidy, exceptional player, but he wouldn't get a looking because he's too slow. Well, for me, you know, the, 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 the weird conundrum or conflict for me is now, with the way modern medicine is, I'd have been fit. So I would have been able to play more games because I probably missed 18 months, maybe two years for being injured. Yeah. Now, with the way they go all over the world and the way they check everyone, I would be fine. Wouldn't be a problem. For me, it's not so much the playing. Because I think I would have, I could have played at this level. I have no problems with me having been an effective player now. I, I, I know I could. I was quick enough. I was strong enough. All of that. I was versatile enough. I think I was more smart than quick, so I could I could adapt. But 
I watch some games where people don't tackle anymore, and I can't say I was a best tackler, but people roll over on the floor, all of that, all, all pullage, all, all of Every that. I, yellow card sort of thing. Every tackle yeah. yellow. I, I, I don't. That's the thing. I mean, I've never, I've never caught back in my day, but football isn't a contact sport anymore, and legal contact is what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, and 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 you know, we we're taken because tackling is an art, and we've taken the art of tackling out of it. Number one, because players try to con the referee, yeah, and the referee lets that happen. Because as far as I'm concerned, when players roll about, yellow card. If if the ref don't give a free kick, I'm booking you because you are cheating. And if I have to send you off for two yellow cards for diving, so be it. Yeah, so be it. That's what should happen. We've seen it blatant dives, and unfortunately, because there's no crowd in the stadiums or they're coming back now, you can actually hear players squealing. Yeah, you can actually hear players. And I saw a game not so long ago, a uh, Champions League game, and it was one of the English teams playing. And it was an English, you know, one of the English teams, one of the England players who's playing for England at the moment, went into a tackle, uh, and squealed. You heard him squeal, and he rolling over. And the the the, the commentators go, "Oh, that looks a bad tackle." Da 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 da. And then they showed it from another angle, and the guy's literally about two or three feet away from him. He's not touched him. And I'm, I'm screaming at the telly, well, commentators, say something. Yeah. Say something. You've got to say. Never said a word. Moved on. It was, <laughs> it, it was actually embarrassing. It was embarrassing. Yeah. You know, it, but that's where we are. And I probably would have, as much as I moan about it, probably because we've evolved, it would pro- I'd probably have to accept that now. Because yeah. I was one of those players who would have got kicked all over the place anyway. So yeah. I, I, my, diving, my diving chops would be, you know, 9.9. I'd probably say I'd give myself for the, for, for for my 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 ability to dive with precision and and class and panache. Yeah, <laughs> I could. <laughs> well, after your playing career, you went into coaching. You were coaching for the likes of Wimbledon, Arsenal, Torquay, and Brentford. How yeah. did that transition happen? Well, when I finished playing, I was because my career fizzled out because I was injured. I uh, you know mentally and emotionally, I struggled. In yeah. fact, for the first year. I was lucky I could do it, and I had a wonderful family. For the first year when I retired, I didn't do anything. I couldn't even get out of bed. I, really? I, oh, I struggled. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you see, your whole identity is linked to playing football. Yeah. You are someone. Then all of a sudden, like that, it's gone. And you hide. Because now you're not seen as that, that person. That identity is gone completely. So I struggled, and... Um, Coaching came about, my, one of my wife's work colleagues' husband had a Sunday side, under 16s. Yeah. And he tra- he trailed me for about six months. And I'm saying to my wife, Sharon, no, 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 I want to talk to him, no, no. But he persevered. Yeah. So to get him off my back, I said, all right, I'll do one session. I'll do one session. And I did one session, and I don't know. It's like a, a switch was flicked. And that was it. And I just loved it. I coached them for the rest of the season. Then I went on and did all my badges um, and ended up um, coaching. I did academies. I started with Chelsea. See where Chelsea are now. Chelsea used to, their academy teams used to train in Battersea Park in London. Yeah. I used to coach for them there. Yeah, I coached. No Harrods though, is it, Mort? Yeah, no, no, it's no Harrods. No Harrods at all. I coached for Wimbledon. And Milton Keynes Dons when they changed. 
I had a year at Arsenal. You know what? Timing's great. The year I had at Arsenal was the year where they wore that purple kit and they were leaving the stadium and they got to the Champions League final and they took all the staff to the Champions League final. They got beat. So it's timing. Um, <laughs> I was lucky enough to coach uh, in the national football as well. Um, a good friend of mine, Leroy Rosinha's parents were from Sierra Leone and he got the job as Sierra Leone manager and, and I was his assistant. So we spent... A, a good few weeks over in West Africa in Sierra Leone, which was... What's the difference between um, club management and uh, club coaching to international management and coaching? It's completely different because, you see, you only have the manager, you only have the, uh, the players for a period of time. Although, if I was to say, in Sierra Leone, it was very different because Lira got the job, I'm his assistant, we turn up at the National Stadium... Um, and I, I bet this doesn't happen with England. Put the cones down to warm up. I, I'm sticking the cones out. There's 2,000 people watching us. Halfway through, I look up. There's about 40,000 people watching us in the National Stadium training. Now, one thing I will say. Lero was manager. I was assistant. Probably the third day into training, um, this guy comes in. And he's got his hands behind his back. Very official. He's got kit and boots on. Well, it's the old manager who they hadn't sacked. <laughs> him. They've moved into one side and he's still walking around like he's the manager and they didn't tell us. So we're like, so we come up to the first game, we're playing Togo and uh, we, we spoke to all the players in the hotel. So we're having a meeting seven o'clock on the Friday, okay, in the hotel. We get to the room, seven o'clock on a Friday, there's no players. We can't find them. Well, they're with the old manager who said to them, well, you know, the Sierra Leone FA owe you some money, so I wouldn't play until you get your money. <laughs> so they, we leave them to sort that out, and then we get the players. And, and, and do you know what? We played Togo. We got beat 1-0. I mean, conservatively, we should have won about 6-1. We missed so many chances, but yeah, there were 80,000 people in the stadium. Wow. There were 20,000 outside trying to get in. There were kids hanging off the, uh, the floodlights. It's the most incredible. incredible thing I've ever seen. So we're nil-nil at halftime. We come in the dressing room and we're talking. It's, and we're playing well. It's absolutely fantastic. We've got guards on the door to stop people getting in, okay? <laughs> um, and the door bursts open. And it's one of the cleaning ladies. And she's on a mobile phone to her mate. And she walks past us, she walks through us to the window, opens the window, and now is having a three-way conversation, <laughs> her on the phone, her mate out there, and we're, we're like, how the, what you let? The security guards, that was someone's mum, so they let her in, and she's like, a believer, love, you've got to go. And she's like, no, 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 I'm talking to my mate. No, it's half, <laughs> me and me were looking at each other thinking, no one will believe us. No one will believe us. So, I mean, there was, there was, we could have written a book on the escapades in Sierra Leone. It was just the most... I can remember one day, one of the first days we turned up to training, we get to the... Uh, 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 we're still in the van, we get out, and Sierra Leoneans are lovely people. They'll do anything for you. So we had two guys. One guy said, can I take the bag of balls? I'll take the balls. Yeah, fine, no problem. Another guy comes up and says, oh, no, no, I'll take the balls. No, no, no. Now they're arguing. They are fighting now. So I pick the balls up and we walk up. They're still fighting over who's going to take the balls. 
and, and, and so I, I walk away. And, and so it's, I mean, the people are lovely. And then come to the end of the training, okay, the crowd's dispersing. But what happens is a huge, two or 3,000 stay. And as they know we're getting to the end of training, they've come down from the stands and they're literally around the pitch and they're getting closer. And I'm like, what's going on? And they're going, and all of the players are edging towards their gear. So then the game's like, oh, well, they're going to nick your gear. I'm like, what are you talking about? Anything that isn't nailed down is gone. I had the whistle. I, I, I made sure I, I went over and picked my stuff up. Blew the whistle. I was literally picking stuff up. Blew the whistle. It was a free for all. I tried to make all the cones, everything. Honestly, it was just, it was, it was the most amazing, you know, four or five weeks. It really, it worked absolutely every emotion. Every, I've never been as frightened. I've never been as sad. I've never been as uplifted. There was eight, the 80,000. There was a spell in the game where we missed a chance and the roar of the, the crowd, literally, I nearly fell over. It was the yeah. most emotional thing ever. So I find myself fortunate to, to have, uh, have been able to, to add international, you know, football to my CV as a coach. Brilliant. Can't complain. Awesome. That's awesome. You're now commentating as well. So uh, had you had you thought that's a natural progression after coaching to commentary as well? Well, I've been commentating since the back end of my playing days. I've done, I've done little bits and pieces for for local radio and what have you. And um, but it was it was actually blind luck because I was working for an organisation called Show Races and the Red Card, and yeah. we delivered an educational workshop at Arsenal's ground. And LBC, London's you know broadcast, they were there, and they they. It's funny who they wanted to speak to was Lufa Blissett because <laughs> Lufa's an idol, and yeah. Lufa had driven his car to the stadium and couldn't, and was having a row. He was downstairs having a row with one of the security guards. They wouldn't let him park his car, so <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so my boss at the show races have said to me, "Look, can you do the interview for us?" And I went, "Yeah, fine, I did the interview." And then sort of 20 minutes later, the guy came to me and said, um, really like what you had to say, said, um, we do a programme, a, a magazine programme on Saturday afternoons called Scores. It runs, talks about football and all sport. Would you like to do it? Said, yeah, okay, I'll give it a bash. Did that for about a year. And then one of the producers of that show left and went to talk sport and asked me to come with him. And I went, yeah, okay, fine, I'll do that. So I was doing both. And it's, it's great, but it has its... It has its downsides. I can remember doing, I think it was a Copper America game. Uh, and they're through the night, by the way. So there was, a, I can't remember, they asked me to do, do some for them, two games. One was at 11, 11 o'clock, I think. And the other game was about half one, two o'clock in the morning. But the guy said to me, make sure you sleep during the day. Make sure you sleep during the day. Now I'd fifth and fifth about all day and I'm sleeping in an hour. And then there was something I had to do. And then I had to travel. I didn't get any sleep. So I, so I get there, and at 11 o'clock, I'm kind of fine. Yeah, yeah. By the second half of the first game, I'm sort of, my head's, you know, <laughs> I'm sort of struggling. I'm pinching. I'm, I must have drunk a dozen cups of coffee. I got through the game. Halfway through the first half in the second game, for about 10 minutes, I think I either fell asleep or... <laughs> I must have spoken some gobbledygook because <laughs> I have no clue. I cannot remember anything about what I said. I can't remember. I, I think I might have fell asleep. I, I do. Or, or I was just talking, you know, the rubbish you do when you're actually knackered. And you're yeah, like, yeah. well, they paid me, but they never asked me to come back. 
You mentioned just then about uh, show racism the red card. You know, you've been yeah. you've been a big supporter of show racism the red card and things like that. And you were campaigning in schools. Um, tell yes. me a bit about that. Well, show racism the red card. Having been who I've been um, and played through the late eighties and nineties as, as a black player, the the topic of racism has always been there. It's all, it's always been there. It's always something I've had to learn to 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 fight to understand more about to to to. To, to support. Along came Show Race and the Red Card many moons ago. Um, and, you know, I always got on well with those people, always. And Jed, Jed Grebby, the, 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 the chief exec, knew really well. And they became, there came an opportunity when I finished playing to become a tutor. So I delivered education in schools, hundreds of schools, thousands of kids up and down the country. We also did police forces. We did the Isle of Man police force. We did uh, police in, 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 uh, Guernsey and Jersey and Isle of Wight, everything you can think of, schools, yeah. universities, we did teachers, governors, just um, raising awareness around Islamophobia, around racism, discrimination, all, all of that kind of stuff. And the, the saddest thing for me is that those, I, I went on to work for Kick It Out as well, as Football's Inclusion Diversity Campaign. Um, and the saddest thing for me is that I don't think football takes any of that seriously. No, um, because if it did, they would be funded adequately. They would be nationwide. They'd have offices up and down the country. We'd take it seriously. I, when I worked for Kick It Out, there were 15 of us working there, catering to the needs of the 92 clubs nationwide, plus uh, teams in Wales and 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 uh, organisations from abroad asked us for help as well. So it was it was just too much for 15 people. Well, it's not realistic, and yeah. for me. We're funded by the Premier League, the FA, the Football League and the PFA. Um, and it just wasn't enough. Um, so for me, the challenge for me is, especially when we talk about what's going on currently with the Twitter abuse of the England players and all, all of that kind of stuff, the stuff that's going on on social media. Um, football, if it wants I mean, to take it seriously... You, you mentioned social media and it's not to belittle what it was like back when you were playing, but at least you could kind of leave that racist abuse in the stadium. Now you've got it 24-7. I'm not trying to belittle the fact no. that it's... it's no. or, or it was better back then. You only got shouted racist well, abuse in your face. Did it? I don't mean it like that. You've no, got it. No, no. I, get, I get what you said. The thing about it is it, it, it gave with one hand, it took away with the other. I mean, yeah, you're right. In terms of football, in terms of football, yes, definitely. You could get abused on the pitch and then, then it wouldn't happen until the next game. Problem is, when the minute you walked out of the stadium, you were abused anyway. You were stopped by the police. All of that stuff. Yeah. Made, reminded you that, that, that you were, you, you know, who you were. But at this moment in time, you can't shut the door and hide from it because we've got rolling news, which is always on. Then you've got social media. A lot of players often are paid by social media companies to actually promote stuff. So they always have to be on it. Yeah. And, and, and also they use it. I mean, if you consider Marcus Rashford, had he not had social media, he wouldn't have been able to get to as many people as he as, as, as yeah. he has done in terms of you know uh, forcing the government to do a U-turn on, on on feeding school kids. That's down to social media, of course. So it's a blessing and a curse. The curse is the social media platform owners need to start stepping up and doing something about the abuse. Now, the thing about the abuse in football is what people have to realise is we we go on like it's a new thing. It's not. 
young kids have been harming themselves and taking their own lives over online bullying. So this has been happening way before it happened in football. What we're looking at is two things. It's the racism and it's social media abuse. They're two different things. Yeah. Social media abuse is, is the abuse people can get that can, can harm their lives. Young kids and stuff, bullying. Racism has now been linked with that. Racists now understand social media and they can use it to abuse people. Racism is about teaching people to understand what racism is and the impact it has and why it's unacceptable. But we have to educate people more than, more than punish. We have to educate people and make them aware of the impact. Now, if they're, now they're, if they're choosing, now we have to punish them. Yeah. The punishments have to form some sort of deterrent so that, you know, if you actually are caught on social media abusing someone, this is what the penalty is. So you know it already. So there is no, oh, this is harsh. You know it already. Now you are choosing. It's like a menu. Yeah. I'll have the chips. Okay, fine. You know you're going to put some weight on there. You, you, you know. Yeah. If you do exactly. that, you know what's going on. And, and that's that. So that takes law and legislation, all that out of the way. Because you already know this is what's going to happen if you, and that's what should happen. Just some form of deterrent, make it as harsh as possible. And if it happens, if racism happens in a stadium, we're at the stage now where everyone says it's a minority. We have to go through the majority to get to the minority. Yeah. So you may well have to shut a part of a stadium down for the club to be able to take it seriously and punish those people and yeah. create a culture that it doesn't happen so that fans police themselves by reporting it. Because when I worked for Kick It Out, we did uh, um, um, some research. We conducted research on reporting. We always have reporting stats every six months. Now, if you consider how many, and this is not just professional game, this is every tier down to grassroots, okay? So if you imagine on a Saturday and a Sunday, how many games are played at grassroots level up and down the country? There are thousands, okay? Yeah. Now you add on to that the Premier, uh, the, the professional, non-league and professional uh, level, there are thousands. Now, if I was to tell you that in a six-month period, the reported went up from 240 to 400, that's just this, out of thousands of games. People aren't reporting it. Yeah. So yeah. until we, what people can't do is people can't sit there because what's happening now is you've got people who are, I suppose, not racist, but they're not anti-racist. So by that, I mean, they'll see the racism happening and they'll go, oh, that's really terrible. And they'll talk, discuss it amongst like-minded people. Oh, that's re I wouldn't do that. That's not racist. Fine. Anti-racist is when you report it. So yeah. people know exactly where you stand. I'm yeah. not having this. I'm going to do something about it. And that means, and you can report, most clubs, along with Kick It Out, have uh, 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 reporting apps. Yeah. So you can do it on the download. No one needs to know. No one needs to know that, 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 that you're reporting, but people still don't report. And that's what has to happen. People have to step up. And it's not just racism. Sexism, homophobia is huge. And so they need reporting as well. And if we're not prepared to do that, then, you know, football is going to change and not for the better. Yeah, I agree. I agree because we've, we've had a big movement of with the Black Lives Matter and things like that going through and players taking the knee. And rightfully or wrong, wrongfully, people are now starting to disagree with the, the knee. They think it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's lost its, its power, so to speak. What are your thoughts on that? What, what I always ask people first and foremost is, is, is why, why is the knee being taken? Because too much energy is spent on whether it's being taken or not and not enough is spent on why it's been taken in the first place, yeah. number one. 
Number two, what's been happening is people have been linking it to Black Lives Matter, okay? And, you know, their, their policies on defunding the police and rioting and all that. So they're saying this, this is, and it's lazy, really, because um, taking the knee came before Black Lives Matter. If you remember, I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. and people like that. But in terms of sport, it was Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick was the uh, San Francisco uh, uh, 49ers uh, uh, quarterback who yeah. decided to sit first, by the way. He decided to sit first because what he was, he was highlighting, sit during the national anthem because he was highlighting the brutality of the police against black and ethnic minority people. Now, it was a white ex, ex-vet, I think Royal Marine, uh, ex-Marine, a white guy who got in touch with, with Kaepernick and said, no, 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 don't sit, kneel. Because you're still part of it and it makes a bigger, it's got a bigger bang. So it was a white guy that, that actually encouraged him to kneel. And so he started to kneel. And if you consider, he was ostracized by his, his employees. Okay. He couldn't get a job in American football. Now, those, those group of owners who ostracized him now support him. The director of, of the American football who got rid of him is the same one now who said, oh, you know, he did the right thing. But none of them have allowed him back in. So what I'm saying is the taking the knee is about highlighting the disproportionate treatment of black and ethnic minority people uh, uh, within whatever country you're in. That's what it's about. But lazy people are people who, I suppose, want to align it to their own uh, thoughts and agendas are saying, well, you know what? It's a, it's a political stance. It's, a poli- it's nothing to do with politics at all. It's absolutely nothing to do with politics. And when, when you know, you look at Gareth Southgate, he spoke eloquently about it. He actually explained why his team were taking a knee. And I can remember doing a couple of radio shows where even the presenters were ignoring that and bringing Black Lives Matter. And I'm saying, well, hold on. You're now, you're part of the problem because you are refusing to listen. You, you're having to go at Gareth Southgate without listening to actually his reasons. Listen yeah. to his reasons. He's a white guy telling you why he's doing it and you are ignoring it. And so you are part of the problem, you know? So as far as I'm concerned, I under, the thing about, you see someone like Wilfred Zaha who decides to stand up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's because the knee isn't, isn't taking the knee isn't powerful enough. It doesn't hurt enough. It's not controversial enough. That's what he's saying. So when everyone's going, oh, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, divisive and that, he's saying it's not divisive enough. That's yeah. I'm not doing it. <laughs> and that's, what that's the point they're missing. He wants it to be far more he- heavy hitting. And that's the point they're missing. That's why he's standing up. He's saying, what's the point? Unless it hurts, I'm not going to do it. And yeah. that's what I don't understand. It's got no place in any, it's got no place in, in life, let alone just no, in sport. But it's it's no place at all. But, uh, but yeah, so, so yes, I, I fully support it. And I, and I think it's, uh, and in things like that, he's absolutely right. What, I suppose, what is the point if, if no one's going to take it seriously and it's not dividing enough? And as you say, they're going to have to start hitting the majority to, to attack the minority. That's what's going to have to happen. Unfortunately, that's if football wants to take it seriously. Because if you look at, I suppose, the best there's two examples I can give you. This European Super League that was well mooted. Football took that seriously in this country. Look how quickly football dealt with it. Got rid very, of very seconds. It was gone. With, literally within seconds, it was gone. Okay. Secondly, if you look at VAR, from discussion to pilot to implementation, it took maybe six, seven months, and then it was in. 
Because football took it seriously. Yeah. Look at what football can do if it takes something seriously. Yeah. You know, around discrimination. And I'm not just talking about racism, I'm talking about sexism. is a huge problem. Homophobia. We don't have any players who uh, feel safe enough to be able to talk about openly about their sexuality. That We don't. Because in that mentality, football is in the dark ages. It yeah. really is. I mean, if you consider from when you were a kid to now, watching, watching Shrewsbury and Newcastle, if you look at how football's evolved since then, absolutely everything you can think of in football has evolved is, uh, apart from this age-old mentality. And, yeah. and we have to encourage people to recognise that they need to move into the light with the rest of us. Not even, the pies in you are, even the pies in you are more sick than... even getting new flavours. Do you know what it is? Exactly. <laughs> Everything's changed apart from this mentality. And, you know, and, that, and that's why, we, you know, and I've delivered education at football clubs. And the scary thing for me is there is still a challenge around sexism and homophobia. I, I speak to players about, about uh, uh, um, gay players and sexuality and things like that. And they still recoil. They still struggle with it. They still find it difficult. And I'm saying, that's absolutely fine. Let's talk about what your struggles are. Yeah. Let's just try and put it out there. Because if we understand what your struggles are, because, I mean, one of the things, you know, when I talk to players about 100% the consensus is we would back our, play, our, our teammate. And, and you know what? The players would. They, they genuinely would. But you see, the problem you have is, and I say to them, okay, fine. I said, but do you use homophobic slurs in your banter? And they go, yes. I said, well, how are you backing that, that? I said, if you've got someone at this moment in time, in this room, struggling with their sexuality, and they know that you use homophobic slurs as, their, as banter, are they going to feel safe enough to talk to you? Is this an environment where they feel they can be their true self? When you are making jokes? Yeah, but, but if we knew, if we knew, then we wouldn't do it. I said, but why are you doing it in the first place? Why, why are you doing it in the first place? Yeah, they, I, I, you know, it's funny because I, I work on the after-dinner circuit and they've got that mentality, like the old sports clubs and stuff like that. And they still have it to the point where you kind of sit there and you go, I can't believe I'm yeah. in this room, you know, because they don't like black people apart from the ones they know. They yeah. don't like gay people apart from the ones they know. Yeah. And you you're go, all right, you're all yeah, right. Yeah, 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 I don't mean you, you're all right. You know, <laughs> it's just like, you go, I, I can't work this out from you. I don't understand what you're doing. <laughs> It's from the 70s. I've sat with people who have said, no, 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 you're okay. And I can sit here and go, no, 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 no. I'm not okay. Yeah. Because when you Clearly say, not okay in your mind, am I? I'm clearly not okay. The one thing that you get sometimes, I mean, I'm, I can remember delivering a, a speech, some of the work that I do, corporate speech, 300 people. I'm the only black guy in the room. And we're having drinks after. And I think one of the guys, maybe he's had a bit of drink or, or he's fucked up the courage. He's nudged me Bent over and gone, you're all right, isn't you? And I went, what do you mean? And he went, no, no, you're okay. You're, you're really all right. And bless him, I've experienced that so many times. And I think the outpouring of angst was about 15 years of angst, unfortunately. Yeah. So I said to him, um, I'm okay. He went, yeah, went, as opposed to what? Or <laughs> when, when was I okay? When did the, 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 the switch flick and yeah. I become okay? Because... Was I okay five minutes? Was I okay when we first met each other? So yeah. can you explain? What, what, what does okay mean, actually? Hey, you're all right. I said, all right, as opposed to not being all right. So at some point, I wasn't all right. 
What yeah. hoop did I have to jump through? In fact, when did I jump through the hoop that made you, you know, and his face <laughs> went red and he, he and, and you know what? I felt guilty at making him feel embarrassed. I really felt <laughs> Yeah, I did. It is bizarre. And he couldn't explain it. And I said, no, 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 I need you to explain it because I, apparently I'm okay. I'm all right. And I, I don't understand why I'm all right now. Yeah. I mean, when we first met, was I all right when we first met? Well, I didn't know you then. So I wasn't all right. Now you know me, I'm all right. Yeah. Most bizarre thing. And, and, it's, and, and I, we could have been going on now, but I just thought I'd let him go. I've got two more questions for him, my friend. Yes, What's next for you? What's next? What's next? Uh, I'm a I'm a counsellor, um, a therapist, psychotherapist, and also a clinical supervisor in private practice. I think I'd, I'd want to grow my practice, um, especially as a supervisor. Although I've passed, and I'm a qualified supervisor, I've got a couple of clients, but I'd like to to do that. I'd like to do a bit more research. Um, actually, in the middle of starting to conduct some research on football academy environment. Funnily enough. Yeah. Um, because we want to be able to, to highlight what's going on there and, and create some education, to some self-reflective education for everyone involved in the environment. So, so that's something we're, we're looking to do. Um, I'm quite busy as it is. I'm a, um, a senior workplace inclusion practitioner for a group called the Centre of Inclusive uh, Leadership. And, and what they do is we, we, we deliver education around inclusion and diversity to corporates. Yeah, um, which, which is really interesting. It's a worldwide thing as well. So I'm up at eight in the morning or four in the afternoon talking to people at eight in the morning in, in, in America or Singapore. It's, it's, it's really good. It's really good stuff. And I'm new to it. So I've been there six months. Um, good friend of mine is a CEO, but it's it's a wonderful place to work. Um, I, I, you know what? I, I've always been thinking about writing a book. I'd love to write a book. Um, someone did say that to me a little while ago. A friend of mine who was a journalist said, you know, you've got some really good stories. You should write a book. And I, I'm sort of from the, I don't like people to know my business. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like, you know, don't want people to know. I, I, you know what? I, I call it, I call it Michael Corleone. Michael Corleone in, in, the, uh, in, in the Godfather, when, he, when his wife sort of asked him, uh, asked him if, if, he, if you know, if he, if he had someone killed. And he sort of says, don't ask me about my business. <laughs> don't ask, and that's what I feel like. Don't, all right, I'll give you. You can ask me one question about my business and never ask me again. That's what I feel like. I don't want people to know my business, and that's yeah. what I said to him. I said, nah, "I don't want people to know my business." He went, "No, no." I went, "I don't want people to know my business at all." I'm coming up with Michael Corleone, bit like that. So uh, I don't know. I've got lots to do at the moment. Football's yeah. coming back, so I've, I'll have match commentary. Do you know what I really want to do? I mean, we work together at Love Sport. I'd love to be able to pre present a show again. I'd love to be able to go on the radio and present shows and things like that. I haven't really done anything about it because I'm ever so busy. Really and that's busy, the biggest yeah. Problem I had. yeah. I'm ever so busy. So I'm I'm happy with where I am at the moment. Uh, my wife isn't because we don't see each other because <laughs> I'm so busy. But but um, yeah, she might actually be happy about that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But Although no, I've no, just no. thought then, yeah, I think I think your book title should be called "You're All Right, You," ain't you? That's, That's what you should you know call what? it. I'm, I'm nicking that. I'm nicking that. You're all right, ain't you? Just write that down. Yeah. So, so there you are. I mean, it's, I, I'm I'm loving life at the moment. Uh, I'm working hard. 
um, I'll work to the day I die. I, I won't retire because I just love working and everything. And it's so different. I find myself fortunate. Some people, and I'm sure you know that yourself, some people work nine to five in the same job, doing the same thing. Every day is different for me. And I love, I love, I love working for myself and with other people. So I find myself really fortunate and, and I wouldn't want anything to change. And like I said, long may this continue. It's a wave I'm riding and, <laughs> you know, I, I just want to keep riding it. I've got one final question for you, Mort. Who of your celebrity showbiz friends would you like to see on this podcast? Ooh. Have you had Ewan on? I have had Ewan on, yeah. Ewan, Ewan's been on. Ewan on. Have you had, uh, you want, I tell you who you want to get, the handsome goalkeeper. That's who you want uh, to Richard get. Wicked Lee. Right? <laughs> Dickie Lee, he's on. <laughs> yeah, Dickie Lee. And then you can ask him about the facelift. Because that must be why he's handsome. <laughs> <laughs> that must be why it's handsome <laughs> Richard Lee is on the list Paul Mortimer thank you very much indeed for coming on to the podcast fantastic thank you for having me loved every minute of it thank you the Cal Halbert podcast and there we go, my friends. That's my chat with Paul Mortimer. He's a hell of a guy. Really, really decent bloke. I really, really like him. He's, he's such a good man. Uh, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please, please, please give it a big share with all of your friends. Uh, and, and don't forget to, to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can go over to calbutmedia.com and all the other episodes are on there. So if you want to backtrack, if this is your first episode and you go, oh, I enjoyed that, have a look back at all the other guests that we've had. We've had some great ones. And if you want to support the podcast, you can uh, in two ways. Number one, you can give us five stars. That really helps us out and helps other people find the podcast. And also, we've got our own Patreon page as well, which you can... All the details will be in the link below. But anyway, right, I will stop waffling on, and I will see you... Well, you'll hear me next week. The Cal Halbert Podcast. You've been listening to a Calbert Media production.